and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I'm joined, as ever, by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I am very, very excited to be talking about the game with Dan this fortnight. Um, Because, like all cinema lovers, I think David Fincher is the bee's knees. So um, <laughs> I'm sure he'd love to hear that accolade, uh, officially bees knees. But Dan, how do you feel about David Fincher in general before we get into the game? Yeah, I mean, I don't. he's not a controversial like, is he? Like no. everyone is like, he's a bit serious. He's probably slightly difficult to work with, but he's fucking brilliant. <laughs> he brings out the goods. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the, the main reason I asked was that every now and then, like when someone tips into the mainstream like David Fincher has done, um, it can sometimes invoke your eye. Sour me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think the thing is that what David Fincher does is he brings a lot of the stuff I like about non-mainstream cinema into the mainstream. Yes. And actually, and not to get too far ahead of ourselves, a lot of, like, in the a- astonishing depth of extra features with the, the recent Arrow Academy release of the game, one of the recurrent things is that in all the iterations of the game before it fell to Fincher, before it was rewritten the studio was always trying to make it a bit lighter and a bit more accessible. Yeah. And then Fincher comes on and he's like, oh, this guy needs to be much more of a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... And I like, I like that. Like, he's, he's, got a, he's got a grime and a dirt to the way he, like, sees the world, whether or not it's as dirty as Seven or as slick as the game, that you often don't see from mainstream directors. And I think that that's a nice bridge between the mainstream and the independent for me. Yeah, I mean, what um, I mean, there's lots about what you've just said that I want to talk about. Like, you know, it is fascinating that the studio wanted to happy it up when this is a, a script that came from a place of quite extreme depression. Um, yeah, you know, so there's a, there is a great we we'll, we'll get onto it properly later, but there is a great interview with the co-writer on on the disc that that talks about the inspiration and and you know how how it all started. Um, but Fincher for me is kind of really interesting in that yes, he does have that darkness and and that that grime uh, as you say, but he's also kind of drawn to Friday night entertainment as well, and I I, I like that he kind of takes on these projects that you never would have expected him to but somehow he makes the make complete sense within his vision so you know you do associate him with stuff like you know the downer stuff like seven or fight club or 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 the game which to me is kind of a medium or a bridge to stuff like his girl with dragon tattoo remake and um gone girl especially but i think what connects all of those kind of more populist works that he he dips into is that he's given them all a kind of Hitchcockian feel or he sees them as potentially um, vehicles to to sort of scratch that Hitchcockian itch that he clearly has Um, and the game certainly feels very Hitchcockian doesn't it yeah, I mean, I think you're, that's a, a sort of a common trend amongst a lot of the more mainstream directors that we touch on on this cult podcast and <laughs> some yeah. of the less mainstream podcasts, as, uh, mainstream directors as well, is that Hitchcock is kind of a, a keystone for a lot of them. Yes. You know, whether it's your Argentos or your De Palmas, all of whom are kind of at the forefront of their particular corner of cult, they all, like, they're all inspired by Hitchcock. And he's such a... He's such a, you know, he, he literally casts a big shadow 
uh, the <laughs> opening credits <laughs> of his TV show um, across the industry. You know, Hitchcockian is 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 a is a phrase, but I would say that Fincher kind of distills this kind of like this hybrid of Hitchcockian and Kubrickian, and and that gives it this kind of like grandness in its in its uh, in its conceit to his projects that like you know while Argento is being very showy there's always he's always working within a a, a specific bracket De Palma too um and I think that Fincher manages to sort of break out of that and do something bigger yeah I mean I, I for me I think Fincher is the closest to Hitchcock I think that De Palma and Argento they idolize him but I think Fincher is the one that actually has the sort of insane attention to detail and the passion for world building that kind of goes hand in hand with the attention to detail that gives him that kind of Hitchcock edge. I see references to Hitchcock in Argento and De Palma and uh, a recreation of mood to a certain extent, but in terms of the the sheer level of control freakery that it takes to be someone who's compared to Hitchcock and Kubrick, which you've just done. I think that kind of sets, sets Fincher apart. And, you know, this could have just been a, a kind of throwaway thriller, but uh, I think there's a, a kind of attention to detail and a level of filmmaking going on here um, that, that sets it apart from some of the directors that, that we've discussed before. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I do. I, I, I think you're right. I think, to be honest, a lot of that is just down to budget, mm. and I think that that, I mean, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe with uh, more money, some of these other directors would have made exactly the same film, but just taken more cocaine. But the, I, I do think that the ability to say, well, we're going to fucking reinforce this pier because we want to shoot this scene on this particular pier. And because of the natural lighting around it, we don't want to introduce artificial light to this space and whatever. That's not that's not just control freakery. That's well-funded control freakery. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, there's two points to make to that. Uh, one is that if there had been CGI stuff uh, in Hitchcock's day, you know, maybe rear window would have been done differently. Um, but, yeah. but, you know, he certainly built that world from scratch, which is kind of what um, Fincher did with uh, Zodiac, for example. And in terms of kind of the budget stuff, look at Mission Impossible. Um, I, I love Mission Impossible, don't get me wrong. And I, I, as everyone listening to this podcast knows, uh, regular listeners, our beloved Arrowheads, will know that I love De Palma. However, Mission Impossible, super fun, entertaining action movie. Every decision is made for the audience and to kind of give them a rush. But it doesn't have the same kind of world building that, that Fincher has. Um, but I, but, and and but it doesn't you... have, like, you know, De Palma, God love him, his camera choices, his shot choices, you know, they call attention to He's a showboater. He's a showboater. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas with Fincher, even though he has a very distinctive and recognisable style, his choices are based on character and story um in in terms of shots and edits and production design costume design it, it's all to to reflect the story and to to build this world in a really yeah, interesting he's, he's, way he's 
he's building a fully realized world rather yeah. than a stylized world. Exactly. Uh, and the only, often the only stylization comes in things like grade and lens choice and that exactly. kind of stuff, which is a technician's yeah. decision. Yeah. Like I, I don't mean a technician as opposed to Fincher. I mean that Fincher is a technician in yes. those regards. Yes. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you there. I think that the 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 difference, the problem with con- comparing Mission Impossible to something like the game, yeah. is that Mission Impossible is a crack in the door for De Palma, and he's suddenly got all this money. And he's making a bombastic, fun, exciting film, which suits the script. You know, the script to Mission Impossible is, mm. you know, despite its comparable level of twists and turns, is not the is not the same as the game or Seven or Fight Club, and and doesn't merit. Can you imagine what Mission Impossible would have been like if it was done as austere as something like Seven? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, uh, yes, I, I hear you. Um... I mean, I actually really love some of the later Mission Impossibles, and you know they're done with the, they are a little a little bit, bit more austerity, th- yeah, yeah, exactly, and and actually weirdly a little bit more like classic Hitchcock. We come back to that name again, but um, yeah, I I just think that Fincher, he's he's a details guy, and you know his films reward multiple viewings and multiple watches and in terms yeah. of like his his level of power um yes he was coming off the back of seven um with the game and you know he would go on to do fight club and you know fight club is is more of a power move than than the game really but let's not forget that his kind of foot in the door was alien 3 and um yeah he had absolutely no control there whatsoever he almost absolutely. didn't have any control um over seven and in fact i i would recommend that that um arrowheads listen to a podcast called neon badges the seven episode of neon badges is absolutely incredible and you know i'm obsessed with that film and it gave me information that i didn't know about um you know how that film came together and how it was basically a complete miracle yeah, we all know the stories about um, how Brad Pitt got sent the wrong script. But um, yeah, the story behind everything around that is very, very fascinating. Um, but yes, sorry, I'm going I'm going off track. And we do have a lot to discuss about the game, don't we? So um, let's stick to the game. But Dan, we haven't actually done the plot yet. Yes, and there's time for that. <laughs> but first, uh, <laughs> like, I think the thing is that he... <laughs> Uh, Like, after the experience on Alien 3, he was so gutted by that. You know, he he, in multiple interviews, he talks about the fact that that he basically realised he wasn't happy to do this, you know, this directing game again if he wasn't able to have that full control. And Mm. even to the extent that, like, the the closeness he got to not having control on 7 just steeled that for him. And that's one of the reasons, I think, that he's such a control freak. And yet he sounds like quite a generous director when it comes to actors and performance and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think he hits this middle ground where he's like a stern schoolmaster who gets the best out of their students. And that's and that's why these things are so well put together. Yeah, absolutely. I think he surrounds himself with good people. Um, Yeah, he also doesn't suffer fools. Um, So I think, you know there is kind of this this suggestion that he is a difficult guy um to work with and just in my experience um i mean here's here's a bit of behind the scenes uh facts about what it takes to interview david fincher i once had the opportunity to interview him what would it have been for i think the social network 
Um, but unfortunately, I got sent on a set visit when it was supposed to happen. So someone else took over. Um, but the process of interviewing David Fincher is you have to submit a series of articles that you've written for his approval. So he has to read your work before you're allowed to speak to him. Um, I never got that far, so I didn't get turned down. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> need to make that clear. But the person that did go along, you know, you'd think that someone who put someone through that process was going to be difficult. No, incredibly generous with his time. I think he went like almost an hour over the allotted time that he had to speak to him um, for like a kind of a career chat. And so, yeah, I just think that, yes, there is a wall there. But once you penetrate the wall, once you're in the gang, then um, everything's all good. So and I kind of respect that. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he's. I think people might describe him as difficult, but it sounds more like that he's just particular. Yeah, yeah, and that's and, fine. Like if you're hiring a director, you're hiring their taste, and so why would they not be particular? Yeah, and I, and I love that it's it's on every level, even down to the people that that you know the journalists that he speaks to. I, yeah. I really love that. Um, Dan, should we do the plot of the game? Yeah, let's do the plot of the game. Hello, everybody who's never seen the game and has stuck with us this far. <laughs> Spoilers assuming, from this point on. Spoilers yeah, from this point I'm ass- on. Yeah. I'm assuming we're, we're going to do spoilers. Yeah, uh, it's Gordon Gecko in Falling Down, Crossed with April Fool. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not sure I 100% agree with that, but... Um, but a- yes, April Fool's okay. Day, sorry. <laughs> like, for some reason, I always append that title, April Fool's it's- Day. It's it's the falling down element that um that that, that I kind of quibble with, but I don't know but, a man driven to the point of violence by the social stripping away of his restraint and personality and control. Yeah, I I mean obviously, I mean it's a different act structure in falling down, obviously, but it's the same the same path. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I, I guess like actors are drawn to parts that that uh, recreate stuff that they're interested in exploring within themselves i guess so you know michael douglas uh for some reason enjoys playing i've, I've realized i've gone down a road that could be litigious dan <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so i'm gonna i'm gonna stop i'm gonna stop talking now but um yeah i mean nicholas van orton and defends from falling down are both absolute horror shows of, of human beings but I do feel like uh, Nicholas Van Orton. I, I think he's a more. There's more potential for change within within um, Van Orton. Kind of you you see kind of small glimpses of not necessarily from within him, but from the people that are around him. So his assistant Maria and his ex-wife, they both say, you know why do I bother? You know, well, Maria says, why do I bother? His ex-wife says, why do I call? Um, and I think implied in, in those questions is the suggestion that Van Orton is difficult, but there is potential for change within him. But man, he is a monster for a real long time at the running time of this film. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, and again, sort of skipping through the narrative a little bit, but one of the things that really struck me about this, watching it for the first time in a number of years, and I did definitely re-enjoy, like, enjoy it, Rewatching it, yeah, me too. Um, the the multiple times I've rewatched it in the last fortnight, but I think there's a very different uh, like lens falls on it societally now, with mm-hmm. the conversation we're having about the existence of billionaires and multimillionaires, you know, with white privilege, with all of these things. It's really interesting to see a, like a mid '90s narrative where it's like boohoo, rich man can't cry. 
is the is like the big emotional change for the character in a narrative. Like, I yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I I felt that his sympathetic renaissance w- didn't hit as hard. Um, but I think that I enjoyed the structural finesse that was went into making the film even more this time. Yeah, I mean, I I think that there's um, there's a couple of things there that it. You're right. I mean, it does take on a different feel now. Not so much for me personally, the the rich man can't cry element, but for me, it was it had a more of a poverty tourism feel this time around, and it kind of yes. struck yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Struck me for the first time that the CRS's name consumer recreation services has a double meaning which i'd never really taken into account before so you know it could mean that the the consumer is the person that kind of buys the ticket and and they kind of ultimately relax <laughs> um but it could also mean that the, the people take the recreation part, yeah yeah they're they're cons- they go from capitalist to consumer their life is kind of recreated in the image of the people they exploit so you know obviously van orton is very much framed as a capitalist the way he lives his life the the job he has and and the bubble he lives in um and the game removes him from that and puts him into a working class world so his house is covered in graffiti he gets trapped in a yellow cab not the sleek limo that carries him around and he ends up you know taking the bus to mexico and it's in that quote unquote real life experience that brings him to enlightenment and connection and yeah i'm not not sure how i felt about that this time around not a criticism of the film as a whole because you know like you say um, I very much enjoyed it this time around, and I noticed so many more little details this time. Partly because um, it's such a, a beautiful, um, such a beautiful release, such a beautiful print um, that Arrow Academy have put out. Um, but yeah, there, there's loads of subtle little things in here. Like, are there any details that you noticed on this watch outside of the the thematic stuff? Um, yeah, I mean, fuck, the whole film is so meticulous, and that's something that I like. I feel like I was aware of it before, but because I was watching it with an overtly critical eye this time, it was so much more apparent. Like, I'm being much more... I'm not watching it for the narrative as much. Like, I'm certainly enjoying the story, but it's really nice to watch how cl- like how tightly they've pulled the thread. Like, the seams are brilliant all the way through every now and then i'd be like well that eh, does that work uh like I, I watched it with jen and i'd say oh well like how did they know that that like the that they'd run in that direction so they had to put the squibs there and jen would say well no she's leading him it's like oh yeah of course she's directing his journey and so there were a couple where it's like oh well we're seeing the best case scenario so like what if he hadn't had the crank handle with him well they had divers so they could have bust him out and then they'd sell that somehow like you know so there are ways around there are a couple of little places where it's a little bit of a stretch but for the most part it's really really like tightly put together but the thing that i noticed for the first time this time is that Obviously, his father killed himself by falling off the the roof. Uh, So there's that descent. And we see him falling into the pool in the opening sequence as well. But all of his geographical movement is downward for the entire journey. Mm. And obviously, it ends with that final big fall. 
But like whether it's uh, you know whether it's leaving the hill and going down the hill in San Francisco, um, whether it's falling off the fire escape, all of these things are downward falls. He gets a momentary up when he goes up in the lift back to confront uh, CRS, but everything else is down, including like being literally buried. Like he ends up in a tomb, you know, and it's a downward fall, and it's yeah. about like stripping away everything that makes him who he is, which is his wealth. Uh, until he can finally be reborn as the human that he is underneath all of that privilege. And so, like, while it's ultimately a movie about how you can afford to shrug off your privilege briefly to find who you are as a human, but only if you have the most privilege in the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It is about descent, and I think that that's really beautifully characterized in the, narr- in, the, in the visual narrative. Absolutely. It's there in the visual narrative, for sure. It's there in the dialogue as well. Like, there's a lovely moment. Um, like, I love the sequence in CRS, um, uh, where he's sort of first going through the, the process of, of signing up for it, though you get a sense that he doesn't actually need to sign up for it. His brother signed him up, and all of this is part of the game. Um, but yeah, there's that line, you can drop out at any time with no further obligation. And uh, I love that as foreshadowing of the ending. You know, um, yeah. suicide is the ultimate dropping out with no further obligation, um, tragically. Um, you know, it could be foreshadowing, or it could be Feinberg planting that idea into Van Orton's head. Um, you just don't know. But uh, yeah, one of my kind of favorite kind of subtle things and um there's a lovely um video essay on the disc which kind of goes into yeah the, the, the secrets of the game or the y- beauty of the game yeah yeah so um let me just um let me just find the name of the guy that, that did that because uh i think we should uh mention it yeah so neil young is the essayist um and it, it's basically uh, his interpretation of the film. Um, and he comes to sort of different conclusions to, to me in some places. There's some stuff that I kind of agree with, but it's all very well kind of argued and stated. Um, but one bit that he kind of focused on was the moment where uh, Fine Girl uh, tells Van Orton or, or asks him to, to carry the Chinese food. Um, yes. And he sees it as this is his status being lowered for the first time, which definitely ties into a lot of stuff that's to come. Um, but I always, you know, whenever someone states the name of uh, something in kind of a pointed way, that always makes me think, well, okay, there's a reason this is being said. So, um, when he's offered the Chinese food, um, he's told that it's from the New Moon Cafe, best in Chinatown. And he kind of wrinkles his nose at it. And when he's offered it, he he turns it down. And he turns it down a couple of times. He's offered it again in the office. But obviously, a a new moon represents the start of a new lunar cycle. And it symbolizes new beginnings, which Van Orton is symbolically rejecting because, you know, he's very stuck in his ways. He's very happy to be isolated. And, you know, he certainly doesn't want a new beginning at that stage. Um, so, yeah, there's loads of lovely stuff like that. Um, any kind of filmmaking things that communicated something to you, Dan? Well, it's not so much a filmmaking thing, but one thing that Jen and I noticed on this go round, uh, and it's partly because of other things we've been watching and reading about, but mm. uh, we noticed that a lot of his... Uh, so they... The the flashback slash memories at the beginning, the 16 millimeter grubbed up to look like eight millimeter stuff at the beginning, yeah. 
like you know catalogue his childhood traumas you know you've got the falling in the pool you've yep. got the father the beautiful shot where his father and the exclamation mark tide disappears into the darkness behind him and just vanishes yeah uh, and then later when those when that footage style takes over as his memories and you see the father falling you know we 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 see the really the the moment that made him as a human the suicide of his father mm. uh, especially given that his father was the age that he turns yes. in the birthday in this film but one thing that jen pointed out was that every time we have a scene where he is confronted by one of those events whether it's falling or throwing in being thrown into water or you know whatever is going on um he's always it's always not long after he's been given a drink by someone who is a member of the game Oh, okay. And we've uh, and there's been a lot of talk recently, like Canada in in the real world. Canada has just uh, signed off on the first um, psychosyllabin uh, medical trials for the breakdown of post traumatic stress disorder. Oh, wow! Using magic mushrooms uh, to complete, uh, well, to continue rather than to complete, to continue uh, medical research that was first started in the '60s and then was shut down by Nixon's administration in the states as to the idea that there were these like sort of mind expanding drugs that could allow people to rewire neurological pathways that were causing them to experience post traumatic stress because the the way in which it the chemical interacts with your brain it allows you to 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 recreate the pathway of that memory so when you remember something especially a traumatic event because we're all like genetically designed to remember bad things because that allows us to avoid you know the place where the tiger lives or the poisonous berry or whatever so those things are hardwired but every time you remember those things you're remembering the last time you remembered it you're sort of like etch-a-sketching tracing onion skinning over the top of this thing every time so you're creating a caricature of this negative event which allows you to be more and more wary of these things but in the case of a, a particularly particularly traumatic event can trap you in this fear um and so one of the experiments they started in the 60s and are now continuing uh, over in canada are this is this um this idea that you can rewrite these neurological pathways and you can basically allow people to get over post-traumatic stress you can allow people to get past these awful things that happened to them in the past mm. um which is a really exciting bit of psychological uh experimentation but plays really nicely into this idea that he's constantly being dosed and we see him like we you know we we see him literally being very heavily dosed at one point in the film mm. but like uh deborah Kara unger's character is always a bearer of liquids she's always yeah. bringing him drinks she spills drinks on him twice uh, in the beginning of the film and then ultimately doses him later and all the way through his like he's being brought whiskies and you know whatever and the idea that they're they're not just playing a game with him but they're rewriting the things that made him like the the the, the deficits in his character they're letting him get past not just the death of his father, but all of the things in his childhood that give him anxiety, mm. that cause him to lash out, that make him an, a, a negative force on the world around him. A hundred percent. I mean, it, one that you didn't mention in, in, in that list, but it's definitely there is, you know, the clowns that were performing at yeah, that party. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I really love the moment, and this actually ties into, you know, what you're talking about here, the moment where he, he finds the, the fake body, the clown, um, yeah. And there's that moment where the flashback to his father falling, the edits match the piano keys being struck. It's just three times. It's very brief. 
It doesn't happen anywhere else in the film. It's not really something I've seen elsewhere. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's kind of beautiful, but it, it connects the music to his psychological state just before a scene where there's a suggestion he could potentially be, be going mad. It adds this layer, um, uh, and, and the music we should definitely talk about. Um, oh, it's because gorgeous. It's, it's gorgeous, and um, there's a wonderful extra where you can just listen to um, the sound effects and the score. Um, I don't know if you listen to that, Dan, but... Um, it gets a little bit stressful. Yeah, the M and E mix. <laughs> it gets a little bit stressful, um, where it's just the, the sound effects, obviously. But um, certainly, if you've seen this as many times as I have, um, but it is very relaxing when you hear just the music. It's lovely. So yeah, there's all of these things going on um, in, in terms of the the filmmaking and and how it represents the character and the story. Um, I mean, I love that shot of Van Orton, the kind of first shot of him in the office. Um, yeah, where we're really far away from him, from him, you know, we're pushing in um, very slowly. This is someone that you need to approach carefully. Um, but that kind of distance that he keeps himself at keeps him very small in the frame. And then, you know, as we're pushing in, he gets asked, is that a promise? And he says, I'm sorry, I'm not aware of that term. Um, because obviously, if you make a promise to someone, you're connected to them for as long as that promise lasts the terms that promise lasts and he doesn't want it to be connected with anyone because then we see him turn down all those invitations and and and, and so on he's kind of like dr manhattan in that he doesn't want to get caught up in the tangle of people's <laughs> lives um but then there's that lovely moment where um maggie his assistant um she wishes him a happy birthday um, but she's kept at a massive distance. She's in the doorway. She's in a frame within a frame that makes her look small too. So they're kind of connected in that way, but at, at this huge distance. And, you know, he articulates that distance by saying, I don't like her. But he doesn't need to say that because we've already seen it in the shot choices and in the blocking. Um, you know, what Fincher brings out of the script uh, in, in terms of the visuals is, is always fascinating and it's always communicating something. Um, even the fact that, that Maggie, the happy birthday person, kind of looks a bit like Deborah Unger. Uh, you know, you never yeah. really see her quite clearly. But but um, And then when Deborah Unger's character, Christine, is introduced, her head is cut out of the frame, obviously. Um, you know, there's no connection. She doesn't have an identity in terms of the way he treats her and in terms of the way that Finch is kind of shooting her. And yeah, when she's finally full in the frame, she's at a remove from the other waiters singing Happy Birthday, which kind of tells us that she's at a distance too. You know, she's small in the frame, um, but she's not singing Happy Birthday. She's not joining in. So that distance doesn't connect her to Maggie. It connects her to Van Orton um, and because they're both outsiders. So, yeah, again, really kind of subtle, but those connections are happening and, and it all goes to making the ending feel a bit more satisfying, I think. Well, you know, certainly the, the first time that we watched this film or the second time. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, I've just did talked you, for quite a long time. That's all right. <laughs> did, you, did you get a chance to pop the second disc in? Um, so, no, I didn't watch the DVD. I just watched the Blu-ray. Um, uh, yeah, so what did you find on the DVD? Well, so aside from a different audio commentary, which is yes. essentially a montage of interviews, which is amazingly insightful. Oh, not, that the, not that the audio commentary on the main disc isn't 
unbelievably packed. Oh my it's god! Let's, astonishingly let's just very, rich. Let's very <laughs> quickly talk about that commentary before we get on to the one with all the superstars. Yeah, it might be the most fact-filled doc, uh, audio commentary I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Packed full it's of like facts. Every every person, every location, every fucking lens that appears yeah. on the screen, you hear like ten facts for. And and this is it's it. Amazing. Like, in terms of let's you know the production of this disc like this incredible disc yeah. i had never heard of um the guy who who does the comic what's his name oh god i can't tell you off the top of my head i've written down the guy <laughs> but i meant to i meant to go back and put his name down but yeah astonishing but yeah in terms of like james flower produced this disc um and yeah selecting this young man who we haven't taken the name of um you know we're definitely not finches here but um he has the exact attention to detail and level of research that you'd hope oh my for goodness on a fincher film like, like literally I, I, every bit player you who comes on you'll hear like four or five other films they've worked on reasons why they were cast uh connection like vicarious or coincidental connections they've got with other members of the cast it's astonishing yeah it's unreal um like i i I feel the commentary is is basically worth the cost of the limited edition alone um it's like a it's like a film school yeah lit like talking about the lenses talking about the lighting choices as well yeah it's it's a really beautifully instructive commentary it it can be i mean i've said it myself in the past it can be a cliche to say that a commentary is like a film school but in this case dan is absolutely right It, it is just unreal um and you know the the disc also comes with uh, a hardback book with its own sort of level yes. of um, detail and, and, and background and all the rest of it but yeah this is it's truly an unbelievable release uh, on every level it's limited edition as well so i really recommend picking it up sooner rather than later because a lot of stuff has been selling out recently the Gamera box set is um, sold out in a lot of places, apparently. So um, do do pick yeah. up um, this stuff wherever you can. But yeah, you were going to talk about the audio commentary on the DVD that comes with the. Well, disc. no, not I, I was I was sort of acknowledging it, and it's great. Oh. Uh, but actually, the the tiny tiny little speck that I wanted to mention on the second disc is the alternate ending. Ah, um, right. Yes, talk about that. Which, well, so it's it's less of an alternate ending as it is a, an alternate shot that replaces the ending. <laughs> but I prefer it so massively. And obviously huge spoilers here, if you haven't seen the film. Um, but it uh, the, the bit where Michael Douglas fucks off his own, like, you know, presumably $10 million party, he fucks it off to go outside and chase down Deborah Unger. Um, but in the alternate ending, he gets outside... And uh, concierge says, can I call you a cab, sir? And he looks around and Unger's nowhere to be seen. And he says, you know what? No, you're fine. And then he just walks off into the night and that's the end of the film. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, that's... And I, I loved it. I yeah. did not need the romantic, like, because like, why the fuck would she, like, she's, she's an actress. Like, I don't like, that's like one of the few things about the film that I always stuck with me a little bit. Like, why would she give a fuck about this guy? Like, all she's seen is him being a prick. And yes, he's had a, a sort of like a big emotional response, but we've had seen no evidence that she's invested in that. Like Sean Penn has seen that. The owner of the company has had a check signed. But other than that, like she's just watched him be a right old bellend. He even acknowledges that he's never asked her name in the actual ending of the film. Mm. 
And, yeah. and, and she's so in character that she gets her birthplace wrong in that scene. Yeah, so I, 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 I do hear you and, you know, it's, it, yeah, that, that perspective is absolutely valid. But for me, I do feel like, you know, sometimes twats are drawn to each other and um <laughs> I, I, I do think we are being told through the um you know through the filmmaking itself that they are connected um and that there are you know and and let's face it you know it, it's not whether he's a, a a a monster or not it's not the nicest thing in the world to do to someone um like the whole thing with the guy having the heart attack um, that she's totally part of. Um, yeah. You but know. bailiffs don't end up dating the people they take the telly off. <laughs> like just because you've got a difficult job doesn't mean you bang your clients. <laughs> Look, man, let, let's uh, let's move on. And um, I'm, I'm going to... I am now going to name, um, in, in this auspicious part of the, the, the discussion, uh, I'm going to name the audio commentary critic and programmer Nick Pinkerton, Nick, you yes. are a genius. You are a hero. You are the best commentary I've ever heard. Thank you for for doing it. Please do more for Arrow. It, wonderful, wonderful commentary. I mean, don't take our work away from us, Nick. Come on, you know, let us live. <laughs> but um, but yeah, honestly, fantastic, fantastic. So, uh, is there anything else that we'd like to talk about? Uh, with regards to the game no i think it's pretty solid i mean yeah like i i love it i i really enjoy it I, it's probably not quite as good as seven but <laughs> there aren't that many films that are seven's yeah. fucking incredible yeah but it's a really really good film and more importantly this is a really beautiful box set uh it's one of those it's one where i've kept the laser disc i've still got the laser disc of the game uh i think this probably like jettisons that i don't need that anymore the the warmth of the old like new VHS feel that I get with that disc is gone. Like this is so crisp, so beautiful, and and also it deserves to be seen at this quality because there's so much consideration that goes into it. Like just in the in the audio commentary when they're talking about how um, they would shoot the uh, the uh, the opening sequences, the flashbacks on sixteen, they shoot them several times, and then they'd leave them to degrade under different circumstances. Like some of them, they'd leave out in the sun. Some of them, they'd grind with like sandpaper, and then they'd overlay them and intercut them and like really make it feel like degraded eight millimeter. Mm. It's absolutely beautiful, but but you know, but twice the resolution. Yeah. 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 And and just like I'd like to end on a, a relatively hopeful note because, um, you know, certainly in the early days of watching this film, um, this is one that I watched over and over again when I was younger. Um, and uh, taking aside the, the politics of the world we're in at the moment and, you know, the, the capitalist hero and all the rest of it, uh, I used to find this quite a comforting film. Um, I took quite a hopeful message from it. Um, you know, relatively spiritual. Like, if you rename the game with The Plan, um, you could argue that it's a film about being tested um, and that all the shit that gets thrown at us is all part of a grand plan that will lead to an awakening in the end. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of what I used to take from it. And one more point, one more point. A lot of criticism of this film uh, from people who nitpick it and say, you know, well, that's coincidence, that's coincidence. And I love that you and Jen watched it in that spirit, and I love that, you know, Jen 
genius that she is had explanations for various bits and pieces. Um, but for me, like coincidences are a thing. Like they do happen. Yeah, you can't have a coincidence drive a narrative, Sam. That's you know perfectly well. That's not allowed. <laughs> yes, but um, I I don't mind it too much in this instance because it's built into the narrative that they're kind of guiding him and they're pushing him in different directions and like you say and like jen says that there are backup plans um at every stage yeah just it's it's the 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 path that he's taken as opposed to this is the only option and yeah like recently dan i was watching kill bill right Hmm. and um i because i've seen it quite a lot of times i absentmindedly scrolled on twitter um and I suddenly realized what I was doing. I was like, you know, what's the point in watching something if you're just going to look at Twitter? Um, and as I did that, I hit uh, a post by One Perfect Shot, which was from Kill Bill. And I looked up nice. and that shot was on the screen. And I was like, right, <laughs> the game is telling me that I need to focus on this film. Like coincidences exist. But yeah, you're right. It shouldn't be the, the thing that drives you the can, narrative with nothing else use... built in. You can use coincidences to get your characters in trouble. You yes. cannot use char- coincidences to get your characters out of trouble. Yes. The problem that the game has is that it later reveals that everything was a plan. And so ultimately, any coincidence was a coincidence to get the character out of trouble. Uh, yeah, interesting. That is interesting. Because I read it as all the decisions are made to get him into trouble up to a certain point. Um, and they even say, you know, at the end, like, oh, thank God you jumped. If you hadn't, I was supposed to throw you off the roof. Um, yeah. So it but, is. But yeah, they've know. got they've got contingency plans for everything. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't mean that what we're seeing is a coincidence, because if we see a coincidence, then they then have to activate their contingency plan. Yes. Yes. Oh, well, let's get off this. Let's go on to recommendations. Speaking of uh, <laughs> contingency plans, Dan, what, what inspired you? Uh, what do you think would make a good double bill with the game? What are you recommending based on this film? So I thought long and hard about what to recommend off the back of the game. It's always a little harder with the mainstream movies. Yeah. Um, because do you go for style? Do you go for leads? Like, what what are you recommending based on this? Like, what are you assuming drew people to this title? Yeah. Which I think is harder with the mainstream stuff because, you know, it draws a bigger crowd. So they come from for a wider variety of reasons. So I just decided to concentrate on twist endings. Aha! Excellent. Um, and and then I wanted to that try worries to... me, Dan. That worries me because that's also what I focused on. But let's, let's... then. I, well, I I, th- I feel that's logical. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But also. And I, as I expect you have, Mm. have tried to go for twist ending, but relatively glossy or mainstream films. Oh, God. That that I feel are underseen. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I have no backups and I have such a strong feeling that we're going to have the same one. So this is a dice roll. I think... I think we don't. I don't think we've got the same films. Okay. So I'm going to recommend... I'm going to eke this out to see if you can... uh, (laughs) See if you go. So my first first oh, recommendation god. is from 1999. No! Oh my god, we've gone for the same it's thing. I fucking knew directed it. by Mark Pellington. Oh, for fuck's sake! Have we have we, done, have we gone for the same thing? We have, we have. But it's, it's Arlington okay. Road. Yes, uh, Arlington Road. Yeah, free on Amazon Prime. Yeah, yeah. 
It's an absolute treat. Oh, it's his it's his directorial debut. Uh, Pellington had directed loads and loads of music videos before this. Would go on to direct loads more music videos. Uh, his follow up film was the slightly disappointing Mothman Prophecies, Prophecies, which I had been very excited about, not because of its lead actor, but because it was a supernatural movie by the guy that did Arlington Road. Um, but Arlington Road is really a sort of a career standout for him. Um, I don't want to explain too much about it. Uh, maybe Sam wants to jump in in a second to talk about why he recommended it, why he would have recommended it. Yeah. Um, but it's it's another movie that is so intricately put together. Everything is so well set up. Everything is so fantastically structured. I'm amazed that this is the one that you went for as well. It's, I mean, it, I feel vindicated as well. Like, it's a, obviously a great choice if we both went for it. Yeah. Well, it's 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 there's just so many crossovers because yeah. you know it, it's fincher-esque in the you know nothing is quite as it seems from the opening moments and you know the the opening credit sequence is obviously very seven and it, it's got that thing that the game has which is that it has a different feeling today um yeah you know yeah, 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 it, absolutely in, in a very different way because it's such a prescient portrayal of of domestic terrorism like one dinner party conversation could be talking about stuff that's happening today um and it has that paranoid atmosphere and 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 yeah there are other crossovers which obviously neither of us will go into but you you know i uh, why did i let you go first this week of all weeks (laughs) (laughs) well who knows maybe your second recommendation is going to be the same as my second recommendation so you can pit me on that one well who knows i mean i've got a backup now and if you if if you do my backup then and then I'm in real trouble, but I'll be honest about it. But I'm going to go for one that I don't think you're going to go for um, because it's so mainstream. It, you, you said you went for mainstream stuff that, that's kind of glossy yeah. but underseen. Arlington Road is definitely that. Um, but less underseen is The Truman Show. Um, which, <laughs> which I is... watched for the first time recently. Oh, my God. How did you feel? Yeah, I didn't like it. Oh, oh, what a shame. I mean, this is one that I saw at the cinema. I think it's roughly the same time as the game, certainly the same era. Um, And yeah, we were certainly going through... Uh, a whole thing in the late 90s where uh, the protagonist is, is surrounded by actors with a corporation in control of, of his whole world, manipulating his every move. That is the game. That is the Truman Show. Um, but you don't need me to tell you about the Truman Show. And if you do need me to tell you, you don't want me to. It's another one that's free on Amazon Prime. Uh, we don't get paid any money by Amazon Prime, by the way, but they just happen to have quite a lot of good movies for free at the Sorry, moment. Sorry, we recommend stuff you don't pay for. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's a masterpiece. Um, so, in my opinion, The Truman Show. Uh, Dan, what's, what's next from you? I'm on the edge of my seat. It's from 2014. Okay, we're fine. Okay, it's by Steven Soderbergh. Oh, nice. Great choice. It's called Side Effects. Yes. Side Effects is one of the small Steven Soderbergh movies that you might have missed. Uh, and, and in fact, increasingly, he does more of these. It used to be sort of one big, one small for a while. But now he, like, I, I like a lot of his smaller little, like, sort of throwaway, not throwaway, That's that sounds super diminutive. Um, I like his smaller, like, sort of, like, fill-in pictures, the ones he does between the big films. Uh, a big fan of Bubble, that kind of thing. And, and 
I'd say that side effects has a cast that maybe you wouldn't feel meant it was a small picture, maybe a medium sized picture, but it's great. It's about medical trials. Uh, again, because it's a twist picture, I don't want to say too much about it, but I do feel it's, it's quite underseen. It's got a lot of, it's got a very like, it's not as polished or as, or as sumptuous as the game. The game is... So one of the things I really like about the aesthetic of the game is that uh, Fincher creates this kind of proscenium in which he just plays out a scene. Yeah. Like, he used very few lenses. There's a lot of, like, medium-wides. There's not a lot of close-ups. If there is a close-up, it's because it's a detail you absolutely can't miss. But for the most part, there's a lot going on in any shot. And he said in interviews, and I think in the commentary on the second disc, that he likes to set up a shot and let the audience choose what they're going to watch. But in doing that, he's allowing you to miss things. And as a result, he can layer in the info and know that you're not going to get all of it and therefore you're not going to be overladen with it. But similarly, you know, there are little moments there where you can go, oh, fucking hell, and catch stuff later. And Side Effects is different in that it's but the same in that it's almost shot like an episode of the office like it's got a very handheld feel to it it's got almost a verite like element to its aesthetic um and it makes it feel very present it makes you feel very much connected to it and the the things you'll miss are much more about the script than about the the events in the world but it's so well written it's really obviously he's a, a veteran director he's very very competent yeah it's just a it's a really satisfying what the fuck is going on thriller great great love it and that means that you didn't say my backup as well hooray which is uh a film again because it's a twisty thing i'm not going to go into it too much uh and there's a good chance you've seen it already but i just feel like shutter island would be a wonderful double bill with the game um the mind scorsese leonardo dicaprio hidden gem <laughs> uh yeah uh, <laughs> i love shutter island and i think that there are uh, there are definitely kind of crossover uh elements at play right recommendations based on the past couple of weeks dan what have you been watching uh, well, I mentioned uh, all that stuff about magic mushrooms earlier. <laughs> we were talking about PTSD and dosing and my mine and Jen's theories on uh, what was going on in the game. Mm. It's actually not out in the UK yet. I'm, I, I don't know if it's like it doesn't have a, a an announced release. I'm really, really hoping it gets picked up for the UK. Um, in the US, you can watch it on iTunes, as Jen and I did on her American account. Um, it's a documentary called Fantastic Fungi. Fantastic mm-hmm. Fungi um, by a director called Louis Schwartzberg. Um, it ostensibly starts uh, as a documentary about like how ancient fungi or fungi are uh, and their place in the sort of evolutionary hierarchy of the world, how big they are, how important they are, how impressive they are uh, biologically. Uh, then it moves on to, uh, to discussing uh, an insane thing that I'd heard mentioned before but hadn't heard any kind of in-depth information about which is the stoned ape theory have you heard of this no so this is about people scientists uh looking for explanations as to why the human brain or what would become the human brain would grow as fast as it did over a, a very limited period of time in evolutionary terms uh and there's a a, a relatively well substantiated belief that it comes from our primate ancestors' interactions with these psychedelic mushrooms. Uh, and that the 
sort of experimentation and learning that they took on mm. was promoted by their interaction with these uh, mind-expanding drugs, uh, which is absolutely fascinating. It talks about that in depth, and then it moves. Ultimately, it moves on to the '60s drug experiments, and then it was actually it was released last year. There's some fantastic, weirdly portentous stuff about pandemics and the value of funguses combating this kind of disease. Um, but it ends with some uh, some sort of like, I think it's 2018 interviews uh, with a chap called Roland Griffiths, who's a, a medical scientist who's been using um, psychedelic mushrooms to, uh, it's, I think it was the first licensed medical trial since the Nixon administration shut all this stuff down with uh, end of life sort of palliative care patients who are uh, dying of of uh, of cancer to bring them peace to to bring them uh, a state of emotional understanding and connectivity with the world and the interviews with those people are just one of the most like beautiful set of film I've ever seen wow the whole the whole movie is astonishing so yeah, if you're in America, you can catch on iTunes. I'm really, really hoping uh, someone like Dogwolf's going to bring it out in the UK. Uh, it's yeah, it's very, very much worth seeing as soon as you get a chance. Wow, yeah, sounds amazing. Um, yeah, nice one. My first recommendation, based on the past couple of weeks, is a film from this year. Uh, it'll probably be on my best films of 2020 list at the end of the year, so I won't go into too much detail on it. Um, but it's streaming on Amazon Prime. It is called Blow the Man Down. And yeah, I, I, like I say, I won't go into too much detail other than to say it's a fun noir set in a small fishing town uh, that reminded me a little bit of Brick and a lot of the Coen brothers um, as two sisters have to deal with the aftermath of a murder. Um, very, very charismatic leads, beautiful photography, uh, and the, the grade, if you're a, a geek about grading, as I am, is excellent. Um, you know, lovely grain and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, blow the man down. I'm going to give you a chance to watch it before I discuss it in the end of year podcast. Um, but yeah, I, I very much recommend it. Uh, Dan, next from you. Um, so I can't say what I'm working on at the moment. I just literally, while you were saying all that, I, I did a little Google search to just check that there hadn't been any <laughs> press announcements because obviously this is a lot easier if I can acknowledge what I'm working on. But uh, it'll come up in future episodes, I'm sure. But uh, a part of this sort of mushroom and psychedelia research is to do with one of the films that I'm uh, I'm part of at the moment. And on a more sort of peripheral element of that, uh, I recently went back and revisited Godfrey Reggio's 1982 Art House Mondo Scatsi on the Criterion disc from the States. And it's, oh my fucking God, it's as beautiful as the day I first saw it, uh, which was a lot long after it was released. I think I probably didn't see it until the, the late 90s. It was made in 82. Um, yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. A, a, a dialogue free, I mean, I say dialogue free, English language dialogue free, movie with a lot of uh sort of native american chanting in the soundtrack an astonishing movie uh that is essentially a feature-length music video for philip glass yeah if you, if you haven't seen it it's it's really really beautiful it, yeah. it deserves a sort of a a, a a possibly slightly intoxicated uh saturday afternoon uh given over to it it's 
like the biggest screen you can get your hands on it's absolutely beautiful if you have seen it you know how good it is if you have seen it but you haven't seen it for like a decade or two as i hadn't revisit it um the the, the criterion box it has the sequel and uh, and the sequel sequel as well not as keen on the third one but i'll be revisiting the second one in the near future i think cool yeah beautiful beautiful film though i do not agree with the intoxication element of the statement you just made um you know, we, we, we cannot we cannot recommend that people do drugs on this podcast, Dan. How many times do I, I mean, have to tell you? It's not just it's not just drugs you can be intoxicated on, Sam. You could be high on life or Okay. Pissed. Oh yeah, I definitely recommend being high on life. Yeah, definitely. Um, or mushrooms. <laughs> um speaking of being There's a sorry. Go on. Um, the, there's, there's. I, I, I did a, a deep dive on Paul Stamets, who's one of the main guys in Fantastic Fungi. Uh, after we watched the, the thing, he did a TED Med talk uh, and has done loads of really good interviews that are on YouTube. So actually, I'd say if you, if you can't watch the film yet because you're not in a country where it's been released, uh, yeah, do a Google search, a Google video search for Paul Stamets. Um, he's, he's absolutely fantastic, but. Um, he did a news uh, like interview with a news station in the States. And one of the anchors is like, oh, I'd love to try these magic mushrooms you're talking about. <laughs> Can I come and visit you? Can I come and try some of these magic mushrooms? And Stamets does the most fantastic sidestep I've ever seen, where he goes, well, when it comes to magic mushrooms, nature provides. I do not. <laughs> yes, good. Good. No, no drug dealing on this podcast. Um... Good, right. Have you right. ever tried Meow Meow, Sam? Right, um, I'm going to go, <laughs> going to veer this podcast back to uh, being high, high on life. Because, Dan, I, I have a confession to make. Um, now, you know me. I've said on this podcast many times uh, I'm not a massive TV fan. Um, I just feel like more often than not, it's hard to keep a high standard over a period of years. And so most shows kind of get worse as they progress, which means I'm almost always disappointed. You know, there are exceptions. I love It's Always Sunny. You know, me and Dan have watched many episodes of that together and that just gets better and better. Um, but yes, for the past couple of weeks, I've basically been watching nothing but one specific program. I have become addicted to Better Call Saul. Um, which might honestly be the greatest thing I've ever put into my eyes. It's as good as any film I've seen in terms of visual storytelling. Um, it is just insane what this show does to communicate character and story with production design and costume design and editing is just unfathomable. Um, seriously, the, the symbolism that Better Call Saul expresses in establishing shots alone brings it closer to literature than to television, in my opinion. It's insanely layered, saying more in a karaoke scene than some shows say in entire seasons. Um, I've burned through all five seasons in a month, um, which is what I recommend everyone listening to this does immediately, whether you like Breaking Bad or not. I actually don't really like Breaking Bad myself. Um, I kind of hated the way people saw Walter White as a hero, and I stopped watching That's, after the vomit Because they're foolish. Scene. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I just, yeah, it, it, it angered me. Um, but Stop uh, enjoying Scarface wrong. <laughs> yes, but having said that, I'm basically a hypocrite because I love every single character in Better Call Saul, especially um Lalo who's one of the nastiest villains on the show but um 
Yeah, Better Call Saul is like an Elmore Leonard novel meets the best crime filmmaking you've ever seen, whether that's Tarantino or De Palma or Scorsese or whoever else you want to name. Beautiful cinematography with so many wide shots I want framed on my wall. The music's fantastic. The acting is next level. It's wonderfully paced. It doesn't rush. You love these characters because you get to spend time with them being part of their lives during the quiet moments as well as the loud it's the ultimate show don't tell in that respect um which isn't to say it's always slow each season each episode builds and builds to some kind of cathartic crescendo but yeah better call Saul man unless this thing dive bombs in the final season i want to be buried with the blu-rays it's everything i love about cinematic storytelling and it's tv so yeah just a casual recommendation there better call Saul. I will die for this show. Please let season six be good when it comes out. And because of COVID, that's not for a while. So if you haven't watched it, plenty of time to catch up. Better Call Saul. I, I don't work for them. I just love them. Dan, have you seen Better Call Saul? Uh, I, I didn't make it past the first episode, but I do, <laughs> love, I do love Bob Odenkirk, so I will probably give it another go. Holy shit, Dan. Like Bob Odenkirk, like, you know, um, Mr. Show obviously is incredible. He he is unreal in this. Transcendent. A, a, transcendent. As, as a, a, a dramatic actor, you know, he didn't think he had it in him. Um, but Jesus Christ. And it's honestly, it's got one of the, the greatest um, women ever. One of the best, best female characters. I hate the word female because it makes it sound like I'm, you know, conducting a scientific experiment but um as as you often point out dan it's grammatically correct um but yeah the one of the greatest women on tv whether it's the character or the actress kim is just fucking amazing yeah you will love it if you get past it um apparently brian cranston said he's up for coming back for the end of better call saw where it loops back into he can stay away he can stay away. i mean no no i'm 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 gonna give um breaking bad another chance now um you know now that the hype has died down and all the rest of it and you I, know. I would i would say if you can distance yourself from the people that enjoyed it wrong <laughs> and thought that he, Walter was meant to be a hero, and particularly the people who thought that the wife was meant to be the villain, which was always one of my least favourite like elements of people being like pissy about that show. Yeah, I'd say it's worth a watch. The penultimate season kind of goes off the rails. Um, maybe it's the last season, I can't even remember. It was a while ago since I watched it. But it, it, has, this, it has this air that feels like it's jump channel and none of the writers had seen any of the previous episodes. <laughs> And they've just been given like character briefs, but told to like make it fun. Right. So oh, it, yeah, it, it goes a bit fucking weird. Right, um, okay. But then the endings, the ending's pretty good. The ending's pretty good. So yeah, you'll like it. I re- when you said uh, I'm going to recommend TV, I hoped you were going to recommend the Quebecois remake of Brooklyn Nine Nine. Oh, uh, that, I mean, I did see that go round, and it was very funny. Um, but no, <laughs> but, but very funny, and yet not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, honestly, Dan, just you know, to finish this this point, like of everything that I know about you, please carry on with it. It gets better as it goes on, and right. in terms of the richness of what it's communicating, just visually alone. Like, I have never seen a show where the establishing shot tells you something about the scene. Um, Like, 
yeah, in the, in the way that Better Call Saul does it. So, yeah, I really, 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 really recommend it to everybody in the world. But um, I've waffled on enough. Do you have anything else you'd like to say? No, in, in I'm this done, section. Mate. Should we should we go on to extra features? <laughs> extra features. Extra features, extra features. Right, I'm going to burn features. through this because I have fucking loads of extra features. So, uh and we're already going quite long. So, um yes, very quickly, the Fantasia Festival is going on at the moment and it has gone online for the first time because of current events. So, uh it's the first time I've been able to take part in it and uh it's wonderful. Um, I missed Cannes this year, uh, and it's giving me that Cannes feeling. Um, it, it's those kinds of um, wonderful films that you stumble across at Cannes. So I'm going to just throw a few titles out there for people to keep an eye out for when they get released in this country. Um, firstly, A Witness Out of the Blue, uh, Forget Save the Cat. It's revealed early on in this fun and fast-paced crime caper that the policeman protagonist borrowed money from a loan shark to set up a cat sanctuary. So um, that's how much of a good guy he is. He's not just saving the cat, he's saving all the cats. Um, and yeah, it's it's a really kind of fun murder mystery um, where the only witness to a murder is a parrot. And so the police are, are investigating um, uh, with the help of, of this parrot and other things that I'm not going to go into because of spoilers. But yeah, uh, Witness Out of the Blue, really good. Um, probably my favourite, though, is The Paper Tigers. Now, this is less Karate Kid and more Kung Fu middle-aged men. Um, it's a really sweet film about three ex-Kung Fu masters who reunite to investigate the death of their former Sifu. Um, yeah, definitely my favourite of the films I've seen so far, but I do have others to watch. Uh, it's just a really nice film that feels like a bit of an 80s throwback. Um, yeah, just basically entertaining comedy. Um, not, not too much more complicated than that. Climate of the Hunter is a very stylish retro pastiche that feels like House of the Devil directed by Fassbinder as two middle-aged women are entranced by a middle-aged creep who may or may not be a vampire. Beautifully shot and graded. Um, there is a lot of good taste on display in Climate of the Hunter. So, you know, if you like your movies a little bit weirder than, than normal um which is probably why you're listening to this podcast. So, um, maybe not necessarily off the back of the game, but um, yeah, Climate the Hunter, I recommend that. So yeah, those are my highlights so far from Fantasia. I'm sure I will mention more on our next episode, which is going to be with Nail and I. So uh, very much looking forward to that. But I also have uh, some interviews for Extra Features, Dan. Interviews. That's exciting, nice. isn't it? It is. It's very exciting. Our first interview uh, this fortnight is uh, around a film called Pay Dirt. Now, it's a kind of fairly typical straight-to-VOD crime caper starring Luke Goss. Uh, but it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it features Val Kilmer in a post-throat cancer role. Um, so this movie has given work to an actor with a disability, um, which is good. And uh, secondly, Val acts with his daughter Mercedes for the first time in Pay Dirt. So I had some time with Mercedes Kilmer and talked to her about acting with her dad and then she taught me a fact about David Fincher that I didn't know. Uh, and you can listen to all of that right now. 
Luke Goss described uh, Val as mischievous on set. Did you see a different side to your dad when working with him? No. Well, <laughs> yes, he is mischievous. <laughs> and no, that is not a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I did see a different... You know, you can talk about acting in a group so long, but to actually do it is a, a different thing. So it was interesting to act with him because I've never done that before. So I did learn... Um, I did witness some of some of his ideas in practice, I guess. Oh, cool. And what did you take away from that? Did you learn anything yourself? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing I honestly learned as an actor was how to, you know, the fact that his speech is compromised. He has to circumvent that, and he's able to do that, like, so skillfully because of his training, because of other things. But I, I learned that that had been so absent in the conversation in my training. And, and my experience prior to that. And I learned, like, it's one thing, again, like, I could logically understand that I hadn't studied disabled actors' work or whatever, but but to actually do it is a, a totally other thing. Um, and I think that that's the biggest thing I learned was how easy it, it could be, like, how much it brought to the scene even to watch him finding new ways to communicate and how like, and that's, that's like what acting is, is like, I, I can't remember if this is a quote or, or what, but I always think of it as like, um, turning whatever is an obstacle into like a, a source of inspiration, you know, mm. and a way to, to creatively use things. So yeah, it was, I, I learned a lot from watching him and yeah, and he he really did give me like a hard time, which I appreciate now actually. This is for the the Arrow Video podcast, and the episode we're doing is on David Fincher's The Game. Um, uh, just wondering if you're a fan of the game or if you're a fan of David Fincher in general. I think he's like a classic Hollywood filmmaker. Uh, I think he is like a, a really a, a you know golden age like style which is my favorite i love like the 40s movies i remember like i haven't seen it in a long time but i remember really liking the social network like thinking that it was a really well-made film you know uh he preserved uh one of the most beautiful art deco buildings oh i didn't know about that what 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 did he do his office i should maybe i don't want to like blow, blow up the spot but the he, he preserved, like, a huge a block of, like, beautiful Art Deco Hollywood original film studios um, and offices and, and restored it, and, and it's beautiful. And I always, like, every time I drive past that, I'm like, thank God. If if every big director, like, just spend a little effort to, like, protect our history, you know what I mean? I'm always like, oh, I respect him so much, like, whenever I see that. What kind of ambitions do you have? Um, how do you see your future... I watched that. I, I watched a film by this director, Amy Simitz. Simitz. I don't know if. Um, yeah, she dies I'm, tomorrow. Oh no, it wasn't that. It was um, Sun Don't Shine. Yes, yes, yeah. Which I quite liked. I watched that a few days ago, and and I I really love films like that. Like I thought that was so generous to the actors, and um, I would love to do something like that. That was like, which seemed like such a great part and a great a small like cast and a, a great experience like on that film. And there we go. Pay Dirt Yay. Is, yay. Pay Dirt is out now on DVD and digital. Thank you to Mercedes Kilmer for her time. Uh, it was lovely speaking to her. And it was also lovely speaking to iconic British director Sally Potter. 
uh, of, you know, Orlando fame, uh, you know, all sorts. But we spoke about her new film, The Roads Not Taken, which stars Javier Bardem, Elle Fanning, Salma Hayek and Laura Linney. And it is in UK cinemas on the 11th September. It's basically a day in the life of a young woman caring for her father who's suffering from dementia. And we flash back to moments in time that he's experiencing. I found it very moving. So I was really happy to speak to Sally about it. And here's what she had to say. The, the film comes from your own experiences with your younger brother. Um, it has that feeling of truth, uh, even though it's fiction. Uh, the way Leo is treated by strangers felt like it came from real encounters. Can you talk a little bit about the memories that inspired the film? When you're dealing with a subject as delicate as this, in a way, um, it's, it's very important to be authentic and to know that it's rooted in how things really are for people. Um, of course, nobody really knows what goes on in somebody's mind when they are losing their mind or appear to be losing their mind or at least appear to be disappearing or all the words that people use. But the premise of this story was, well, they may appear to be losing their mind, but maybe they're finding something else, which is finding the other selves that they could have been that coexist in some kind of parallel universe. Maybe they're on some absolutely wild journey while their face appears expressionless and they seem to have gone somewhere else. Well, maybe they have gone somewhere else, somewhere interesting. So that was the premise. But yes, of course, it came from witnessing um, the struggles that my brother had as he lost rather rapidly certain faculties um, in, in, you know, from diagnosis to his sad death was only two years. So that's a very short period of time, uh, which I learned is quite common in young onset um, dementias. Um, but while he was losing some things, he gained other things. You know, he became very loving, very affectionate, very grateful. He went around thanking people a lot. Strangers in the street, thank you, thank you, he'd go up and say, you know. What was he thanking them for? Was he seeing something, you know, about their lives, about what they were? So I came to see this apparent disability in my brother as, you know, possibly also harbouring a kind of gift, if one could just change the perspective on it. Um, anyway, it's more useful than looking at it as just a tragedy, even though, of course, it was very, very sad to see somebody forget how to be able to use a key or a fork and knife or whatever, you know. Thank you. We're speaking on the day cinemas start to try to go back to normal with the release of Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Um, the Rose Not Taken premiered in Berlin in February before the pandemic interrupted the normal rollout pattern. Um, what's the release journey been like for you? Well, it's been truncated, hasn't it? Because, yeah. you know, it was a big premiere in the normal way and then I went to New York to premiere it there, but the release was immediately stopped and they went into streaming instead and I was due to go to Mexico to open for all of Latin America and that was withdrawn from the cinemas as well and went into streaming. Um, but, um, so, but, you know, the rollout pattern for a film is always weird anyway. You know, you often finish it, have a premiere, and then it still doesn't come out for like a year or something, in, depending on the country. So that's not so different. But, but we'll see, you know, how it, how it goes, how, if people are going out to the cinemas. 
um, when when this comes out now, or I, I hope they are. I hope. Well, I hope they feel safe and happy to do so, and and have that experience. And and you're reunited with your cinematographer and your star from Ginger and Rosa, Robbie Ryan and Elle Fanning. Um, what was it about this story that made you want to bring those collaborators back? Well, I, I'll work with Elle Fanning any day of the week. You know, she's absolutely wonderful. She's a joy to be with. She's funny. She's affectionate. And she's hyper-professional. Uh, turns up on time, learning, having learned all her lines and just dives straight in, you know, with total commitment. So she, And she can do anything, really. She's amazing. Um, Robbie Ryan can also do anything and is amazing and is very funny <laughs> as well. So we, you know, we have a good laugh when we're working together and we kind of build up a plan, which is, you know, what kind of point of view we're shooting from, what the language of the film is visually. And then he's just very fast and very, has a very improvisatory kind of capacity to be in the moment with the actors and in the situation. Um, so they're both, you know, really great to work with, wonderful. And it, it, it really is a beautiful film. Um, it kind of put me in mind of, Terence Malick and it it has that poetic quality for sure um one sort of poetic element that I kind of want to talk about but maybe need to kind of skirt around it because it is the final shot <laughs> so I don't want to spoil anything but um it's a real moment of poetry for me everyone will read it in their own way but without spoiling the film what does that shot mean to you we are all more than one person oh wow we have choices to make but we can coexist with our choices and with these other selves if we can recognise them. That's perfect. That's beautiful. Thank you. So there we go. Huzzah! Um, the Rose Not Taken. Uh, yeah, lovely film. All right, that's it. I've spoken for way too long. Dan, it's now your turn to speak for 20 minutes. Go. <laughs> I'm just going to say my uh, Twitter handle again and again for 20 straight minutes. Yay! I'm going to get the mushrooms out and have a little listen. I'm not. Do not do <laughs> drugs, kids. Yes! Sam <laughs> loves drugs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so as far as social media goes, I'm at 13fingereffx on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, I'm not on Instagram as much as I should be, but every now and then there's a flurry of behind-the-scenes effects photos, if that's your biz. Uh, and then Twitter's much more sort of commentary, both on film and other matters. Sam. Oh, well, that was a very fast 20 minutes. I am at Sam Ashurst I, on Twitter. It was definitely 20 minutes. I'm sure Mike just cut it down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, Mike. I'm so sorry, Mike. This is going to be another feature-length episode, isn't it? Um, so it I'm going to say this very quickly. Sam Ashurst at on Twitter. That's me, at Sam Ashurst 23 on Instagram. I don't really do much on there. Uh, but just follow Dan. Dan. Dan's the one to go for. <laughs> um, and yes, thank you so much for listening. And we promise, promise, promise to be more professional oh, yes. next time. Next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.